Welcome to the Deep Future podcast of Parallax. In many ways, our understanding of and our relationship to our future forms and shapes us. Yet there is a subtle feeling that this relationship with the future itself is currently changing. We are collectively confronted with a lot of problems that are already here or are approaching us very fast from a horizon before us. And yet we know that we can't solve these problems with the current mindset that we have. We don't even know if our collective framing of that horizon and the events that we are anticipating is the best one. To approach these questions, I welcome Nora Bateson and Suzanne Kugreuter. Nora Bateson is an award-winning filmmaker, writer and educator, as well as the president of the International Bateson Institute based in Sweden. Her work asks the question how we can improve our perception of the complexity we live within so we may improve our interaction with the world. She just published her wonderful new book Combining, which is an embodiment of her recent work on warm data and offers a radical ecological approach to many of the key issues of our time, be it climate change, political upheaval, education, health, food and relationships. Suzanne Kuckreuter is internationally known as the leading expert in mature ego development and self-actualization. She did research and development and is author of the book Post-Autonomous Ego Development, a study of its nature and measurement. I very much hope that you enjoy this beautiful conversation. My name is Thomas Mark and this is Parallax. All right. Nora, Susan, uh, welcome to the Parallax podcast about the deep future. I'm so honored that you're both here. And um, we just started the conversation. And um, before we go into theory and all of this, I, I wanted to ask you um, from more on a, on a personal level, with all your accumulated knowledge and experience uh, how do you what is your personal relationship with our collective future let's say how do you hold all that knowledge that you have and accumulated in in relationship with with our collective future so maybe nora would you like to start with this uh, broad uh, question gonna, let's say <laughs> yeah i was going to defer to suzanne but um Okay, um, I I want to answer that with as much um, sincerity as I can. And uh, this could be a question that it would be easy for somebody who, you know, is speaking about complexity and doing this in a public way frequently to have a very rehearsed answer. Um, around this question of the future. And I want to back away from that and just be very real with you with where I am in this moment today, because so much of what the future holds has to do with the details of today and tomorrow and where they go. And so for me on this day, what I am looking at is... Um, uh, it, it is an inquiry of really how to be there for my kids 
-hmm. and recognizing that I, I am not sure how with all the love in my heart and all the embrace I can give them, um, do I prepare them to get a high grade point average so they can go to university in five years? Like, do I pressure them? What, what, where do we go with this? How do I hold this in a way that really will give them what they need to be in a future that as far as I can see is very uncertain. And in fact, the only certainty I see is um, rapid change. So there's a part of me that is actually troubled and very sad. And another part of me that knows that this, the particularities, for example, of this situation with me in my day and my kids will lead to particularities of responses and that those particularities will lead to other particularities. And sometimes when we talk about futures, the particulars get washed away. And I think when we wash away those particulars, we get caught in an abstraction. That's probably nonsense. Right. Um, yeah, so what I understand is that uh, you're focusing more on on the details of your embodied, of your practical life, more than you have visions of catastrophe looming somewhere um, kind of distanced from you, but more like something that you can engage with in your daily life. Is that something you would agree on? Is that? Mm? Yeah, I mean, in a way, you don't have any choice. You have to engage with it. The question is how. And for That's me, what's, what's behind that how is really what we're talking about. And what's behind that how, for me, is much more of a tonality or a knowing that in the process of trying to solve whatever first order problems we have in the day, we're actually casting pathways that will lead to other pathways that will be second and nth order pathways down the road. So my one, you know, re really deep caring and hope is that I can pay attention in the moment to that nth order possibility um, as I am responding to the first order issues. Suzanne, how, how is it for you? How would you approach this? From, from I am quite uh, sad as also and probably more pessimistic about a future that is so different from what I grew up and I know uh, that I simply have to say I don't know. I've had interesting conversations with Gen Xers, for instance, where when I said, well, you know, how do you interact? Well, we are already cross-cultural. We talk to everybody in every language. And I said, well, you don't know that many languages. And one of the, the young men said, well, I will just download into my brain. It will be easy. And I, all I could say is this is so alien to, <laughs> to me. So maybe, maybe that will be possible. But I have no relationship to that. I'm deeply worried about my grandchildren, all children, but 
personally about my grandchildren who grow up even a two-year-old already has a pad and can do things with it that I can't. You know, I'm slow and old and creaky. <laughs> it's just a new world. And I don't know if it's a brave new world. It's a strange, alien new world to me. All that AI stuff, all that... Um, just something I, I feel like, you know, like a dinosaur in some ways. Born, you know, at the end of the war, last world war. It's 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 weird. And yes, I'm trying to keep up. Yes, I'm reading Wired and I have done the te testing with, with uh, AI. But it, it, it feels like the, some of the humanity is being taken away. And that deeply, deeply saddens me. I don't know whether it's right or wrong or whether we have any, you know, where that's coming from, whether we just have to be open to whatever is coming down the pipe. I don't really see an alternative. I don't see how we can fight it. Other than, as you said, Nora, kind of going along, being open enough to, in, to, to be curious. But overall, I don't see much good coming in the future. I even consider the demise of our species along with all the other species. And one of the most interesting thoughts I came across a couple of weeks ago is about humans being an invasive species. After all the damage we have done, all the exploitation, all the, you know, genocides, the current wars, everything. Um, and again, I don't know what to do with it other than mourn, perhaps. That, that is the question. How, how do we relate to this change? And this constant change, how do we relate to us being this force in this on this planet for, for good and for bad? And I always think that it's not the first time that we encounter such a phase of rapid change. I mean, if you were born in 1910 or something, you would have a barrage of crises that emerged and you had the first and the second world war and the spanish flu and all that happened in the last century and i often think that it's part of our human kind of setup and conundrum that that we have to find our place amidst all this change no is that how what would you say to this well, to me, yes, there was have been changes in human history all along, many, many profound ones. And but the, what happened in the, even just the last two decades is so much more intrusive in some ways, so much fundamentally changing how we are and how we relate to each other. Um, that that I am not sure that this is not really a new thing, that we can't rely on what previously kept us afloat, if you will, and hopeful. Uh, 
And again, I, I ascribe it partially to my age. I'm just, uh, so I have to rely on the younger folks, even those who are 20 or 30 years <laughs> younger, to find other ways. I don't want to, mm -hmm. you know, resign. I don't want to, that's not how I live my life. But I do worry about future generations and what life will be like as a human being when everything is automated. Even now it drives me nuts when I write the AI systems continuously correct things that I know are, are right. They're a bit more creative in terms of writing, but it just, yeah, it, it is intrusive to me. I don't know how else to do it. So anyway, Nora, what's your take on, on what I just said? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's. I think it's important to, you know, notice what all the ancient texts have always said, which is the change is the constant. Yes. And also to recognize that this change that we are in is so rapid. And so transcontextual. Um, so we have, a, you know, the context of the economies and the context of mental health, the context of education systems, the context of everything from transportation to agriculture to um, political, you know, higher political systems to the nature of even family and um, and love and sex and food and it's just everything and so yes. um there has been i what i see is that it's really important in this moment that we be able to look backward and recognize the mistakes without despising our ancestors but to allow for the learning to take place that needs to take place and this is a tricky one because it's not easy it's it's much easier to justify and to say they did the best they could at the time and to give Stop. benefit of the doubt and to say you know with respect and awe, we give thanks to our ancestors. And okay, yeah, and really exploitative, violent mistakes have been made by some people's ancestors more than others. Let's not let's not be fooled. Um, but but the question is not about making them wrong. The question is about holding learning and mutual learning with our ancestors who are already gone. How do we hold the mutual learning across the generations when those generations are gone? And for me, this is a very, very beautiful question because there are lots of cultures in which there is the belief that when there is learning, that learning spans multiple generations. <laughs> and that in fact, this is sort of if you if you know even looking at the con the the concept of evolution, this is sort of that too, that when 
you know, Suzanne was saying a second ago, our species and, and millions of others are at risk right now. So what does evolution look like? It looks like learning. And part of what the learning will include is learning to coexist very differently, which means that the way that that, if you want to call it coexistence, it was very exploitative, that coexistence has been, needs to be recognized as being something that cannot continue. And so I think for me, one of the, the, the most important things to open up is what is there beyond justification and despise? Because neither one of those pathways is going to take us to the kind of mutual learning that's necessary um, between me and my kids, between me and my parents, but also between me and my grandparents, grandparents, grandparents who are long gone. And the, the, the opening of the idea that the learning and the shift that I make allows their story to shift too. That I would agree with, that our modeling, whatever it is, how to be a human being the way we think we can do it at our best is, is going to be influencing how children, our children and grandchildren and those around us see it. But I also see, and I have worked with indigenous leaders recently because I have a strong sense that their understanding of reality and their connection to not just to ancestors, but to, to trees or the trees connection to people, all of that is actually teaching us something as well that we desperately need in the West. That separation that is fundamental to our thinking, categories, uh, labels, names, all of that is so disconnected really from what it is, from the continuum of experience, moment to moment experience. As soon as we start putting a label on it, it, it gets ossified. That's for sure. And, and a, a kind of view of reality that more like some of the indigenous uh, perspectives, they're much more connected, give and take between nature, not just take. And I always blame, I'm sorry to say that, but I blame Genesis for part of the trouble we are in in the West, because it says in the first few paragraphs, make the world under your dominion. You know, it says go exploit it, it doesn't use that word, but that's basically the mandate. And binary and gender and all of that is right way back there, go, by, go back very far. And it has influenced how we see things, how we interpret things. And I, I again, it concerns me. And I don't know what to do about it other than to occasionally mention it. <laughs> I think you're right, because one of the things I see again and again is that there are, we're, we're coming up on Halloween, so we can talk about ghosts, um, <laughs> but there are these ghosts, and by that I am referring to habits of ways of thinking and habits of perception that are so, um, they're old. And entrenched. 
Yes. And they are, yeah, they're, they're old. And because we don't know where they started from, we can't really untangle them anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's this need to, I think, really be on the watch out for those moments when these ghosts sneak out and they sneak out in your vocabulary. They sneak Everywhere. out yeah. in the tone of voice. They sneak out when I'm telling, you know, when I'm anxious for my kids, whether or not they're going to get into university as I'm watching such incredible anthropine anthropocenes change that I, you know, sort of like, really? You're going to send your kid out to get a job? <laughs> um so what, what, and yet, of course, I have to send my kid out to get a job, of right? Of course. And at the of same course. time, it's such an inadequate response to really what's happening. And in that exact moment, I think we're looking at these ghosts in the way that you have to be of the continuing of the system to stay alive. But if the system does not discontinue, we're in big trouble. So it's this tension between continue and discontinue. And 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 lately I've been um, with my work on warm data and, and actually my work in general, and it's not just really with my work, it's also my dad's and, and probably his dad's too. Uh, it's one of the things people say, I, you know, that Bateson, I read that Bateson back in college. We had to read that in the seventies. You know, I never, never did make any sense to me. <laughs> I love that book. And <laughs> I love it too, because it is relentless. There is no mercy in the, even in the formation of the language um, around um, perpetuation of existing epistemological ghosts. So it, it it's difficult to pin it down because it's written to not be pinned down. And that's really important. It's disorienting. And that disorientation, I think, is um I don't know, I don't know how we can go into new ways of living and new ways of being without disorienting. And yet disorientation is really uncomfortable. And we take there are other automatisms that when it's uncomfortable, what do we do? Mm. We go back to what we know, we rely on. Few people dare to then face that uncertainty with with their full being and say, okay, here I am. That's why I said when we started, I don't know. And not knowing is not a threat to me. It's actually an invitation to just be and, and look with open eyes and open whole body open. What is coming down? What is coming next? Can I make a difference? Perhaps as I get older, I think my my realm of influence gets smaller. I think I can do something in the immediate family or in the immediate surround. I'm not so sure I can impact the the the, the what's the word for that the, the the flow of history or you know really make a difference in the big in big sense, but maybe that's also not necessary as I I'm no longer into complexity. I find it sometimes it distracts mm-hmm. the simple being the simple 
awareness that we're alive is, is already a miracle of <laughs> something I daily I wake up and say, oh, I'm still here. Isn't that wonderful? And my my spouse next to me as well. Um, is that is that sufficient? I don't know. But it's where I tend to move towards more and more simplicity. Um, even theoretically writing the simplest language I can so that the child could read it. I avoid any kind of complex what somebody called ten dollar words <laughs> because they they separate they make a special kind of well any kind of jargon does that it excludes a whole bunch of people who do not understand those words and so there I'm, I'm actually going in the other direction away from complexity not that I don't have it internalized but in my daily being I don't go there but don't you think that even the act of making breakfast is full of complexity I mean I I I think I'm with you in terms of you know stepping away from uh, the jargon and the, you know, the, the, the buzzwords of the theory and all of that. Um, and I get in trouble for, I get in trouble either way. That that's where I, I, you know, if I don't use those words, then people think, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And the people who do use them, you know, come off looking like they're, they're, they're the academic and they're the clever one. Um, mm -hmm. but if I do use them, then I get blamed for being <laughs> In, in too intellectual and aloof um but for me i think i i try to embrace all of it i try to you know recognize that everybody is a whole ecology of self sure. and that i need to meet you intellectually i need to meet you emotionally i need to meet you with humor i need to meet you non-verbally physically i need to meet you in in life and love and history and poetry and story and in every possible way i can because that's where you live you live in all of those possible zones so but i i definitely feel like the awe for me at least the awe of being alive and just you know waking up in the morning is is the sacred complexity of life. And so I I love that as as being part of complexity. But I, I hear what you're saying. It's not exactly the sort of complexity that gets touted in the theory books. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it's not where I want to go. Theory is what you know, map making and we need it. Without some theories and some particular language you learn in which you swim all day long we couldn't actually grow and and advance or move but we need to be aware that that's what it is it's it's biases that are so deeply ingrained um, well the tone of it that's another thing how do you mean the tone of it say more I mean, the tone of the theoretical discourse is a particular texture and flavor 
and 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 presentation of expression. And if you're not careful, then you can only see complexity there. And when you hear somebody singing a lullaby to a baby, you might not see that that too is full of, of complex information and communication. And that in fact, there's one sort of process of talking about complexity and there's another, which I is what I hear you saying, Suzanne, that's much more, and where I'm at, is much more being in it. Embodied, yes. So I've I'm... talked about complexity enough. Now it's just like, <laughs> let's be in it. Because the responses that I'm making are, the, are, are from that place in my bone where I understand that, that the thing I say or the thing I do does not stop there. That's the beginning. That thing that gets said or done leads to other things being said and done, leads to other things being yes. said and done. And so be careful what you say and do. Exactly. So that was the question that I actually had. So how do you do that, <laughs> actually? Because, I mean, uh, you you talk about ghosts. I, I call these things uh, zombie ideas sometimes, like old ideas <laughs> that have lost all their, their power or zombie ideas that kind of catch us. But at the same time, you have all these things starting to flourish and starting to decay all at the same time. And sometimes you don't know what is what. And, you know, like without, you know, using theoretical models, just like to be in that moment and to deal with that embodied complexity. How do you how do you do that? How do you hold your center amidst all these constant change and constant ups and downs and my major teacher has always been nature because that it's cyclical it's certainly not linear um and i am totally aware whatever i do in nature and see as lessons are my interpretations i cannot help being me and interpreting that's what human beings do in my view and we make theories or maps because we need to orient ourselves and that's to me, part of the new threat, if you will, is I don't know what I <laughs> theory I can make, how I can explain what's happening to me for my own comfort, even so I know it's just a story. I still like stories because they help me get from moment to moment, day to day. I meditate, I do yoga, not just physically the one the mental yoga i play with my children we do very nutty crazy i'm the crazy grandma the the playful one the one who will just do about anything to to have fun and doing explore what it's like all in all kinds of way to be a young person and my children my grandchildren are young still the oldest is 10 so he's starting to be more serious, but the other ones are still totally happy to just fool around. And we know how much human beings can fool themselves. That's part of what I've been also writing about the last couple of years. The extreme capacity of us to fool ourselves. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's... It, you can laugh. That's the one thing. You can even do call it cosmic laughter, if you will, if you believe in anything beyond this life, which I 
probably don't, but just just the fact that here we are in these dilemmas, in these disorientations, in these murmurations of so many things that if you could go nuts. <laughs> well, well, maybe we already are nuts. I, you well, know, yes, that's the other thing, possibly. It's funny because uh, I... Um... You and I have been around in this scene for a long time. And um, I mean, I was three and four years old at dinner tables 50 years ago with people having conversations about the urgency to address the change in epistemology and the exploitation of nature and each other and, um, you know, communication. And basically all the things we're talking about now, we've been talking about for a long time. And the trends have come and they've gone. And the the you know, the celebrities of the 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 activism world or the the systems world or the all of you know, they've come and they've gone and they've come and they've gone and they've come and they've gone. <laughs> and here we still are. And I I'm um I'm noticing that now that there's quite a bit of fluff about imagination. Mm-hmm. And um, I find this really interesting for exactly the reason that you just said, that the capacity for human beings to deceive themselves into all kinds of things is phenomenal. And so that that really we are never not imagining our world. We're always imagining our world. Yes. So it's not that we're we need more imagination. We've got plenty of imagination. <laughs> um, it's it's really an interesting thing of where's that information coming from? Where is the imagination informed? And so often I think that without realizing it, the thing that we call imagination is actually informed by all those processes that are already in play. And so we we might come up with some brilliant new idea, but it's actually a lot of old ideas kind of reshuffled, recombined, renamed and reorganized. And then it gets called innovation or this or that. And but really it's carrying the same premises, the same bases, the same underlying in you know imaginarial code. And every once in a while, though, there's another kind of information that comes from that part of me or you or whoever that is alive and therefore is part of life itself. And that aspect of imagination is um, is is informed very differently and 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 manifests very differently. The thing is, is that usually those parts of that, that kind of imagination is incoherent to our, the world that we live in. When it's you again actually... disorienting, not mappable in the traditional way that we kind of are used to and have from childhood. But you said something about your upbringing that has fascinated me recently as well. The whole idea of the happenstance of birth. 
Mm. I come from lower middle class or working class people. My parents are absolutely not educated, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and yet here we are talking to each other. And what what does that, how does that, I mean, that's part of the context of the history of our, our whoever we are, that fascinates me as well. So what, yeah. And how do we then end up at least in in some ways in 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 similar thinking and exploring and feeling that is isn't that fascinating too it's it is fascinating and i i think though that certainly at those tables that i was at as a child there were lots of people around who were who were you know best scientists high minds blah 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 and then there were also people who came from another direction and particularly in, you know, people who were there with a whole different kind of knowing. Um, mm -hmm. So this was something that in my household was really valued was different ways of knowing. And um, I mean, remember my dad never accepted tenure at any university because he didn't want to be in a department. Well, and, yeah. Good, yeah. Good choice. <laughs> and he spent his time. Freedom. Yes. around people who might be able to see things differently so this trap of you know maybe we call it the matrix maybe we call it whatever the sort of cultural grid of um of paradigm whatever you want to call it i mean you, i think you, let me illustrate if you were born fifteen thousand years ago you would be looking at the world very differently so <laughs> this way in which there is a, a collective perception of what is, I have to pay taxes. I have to, you know, get my kids to school. I have to get the car insured. I have to, you know, all of these things are part of a, um, a, a uh, what are they part of? They're part of a, a tangle that we're in. And it's easy to point to them and say, that's what is. So my father spent time with people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, with little kids, with other species, with people who were experimenting with LSD, with people who were from other cultures, anybody who could get a tiny peek outside of the um, the wo the weave outside of the weave of these epistemological premises. And so that was always really important. And, and I think that that also uh, is part, I think that's become part of my work too, of recognizing that, and, and what you said, you know, I don't want to speak in the language of theory anymore, that there's, there's something about making holes in the expected scripts, scrambling them. There's something mm. important about surrealism. We have to reach beyond our grasp. We've got to get confused so that there is a possibility of loosening the stitchery. And also to speak up when, when one sees that, that there needs to be a critique, some holes. Do you know the in development goals that are big right now, not a fad? Yep. It's not just a fad. It's sincere. The people behind it, totally sincere. It's all about instead of developmental, uh, you know, vertical or whatever, 
it's about developing values. And they, they're really a big thing now. And I was initially part of it. And then I started saying, hey, the research was so weird, W-E-I-R-D. You have to do something. You can't say this is universal. And they eventually, the third phase, they're now really asking abroad, everywhere, what, 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 what are your values, your cultural values? So I have stepped back because I feel my work is done. I've spoken up. And sometimes that is also part of what I see as a responsibility we have if we see something that needs addressing, mm -hmm. pointing out to. And sometimes that doesn't make you very welcome. Sometimes mm -hmm. it does, but sometimes the first reaction is, you know, and I have the privilege, I would say, as an older woman, as a uh, crone, as a red-headed crone, I can sometimes get away with saying things that the younger person perhaps couldn't. I don't know whether you already experienced that. There is some <laughs> deference, is that the word in English? Deference towards being older. Well, I, I, um, I've been outspoken about the development goals too. And, um, but un unlike you, I took one look at it in the beginning and said, no way, this, this is a mess. And so I never went in. Um, I, I fundamentally just don't want to be part of that. And it's, well, it's no quite, longer. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's quite serious for me. I, I. I see that this idea that you could ever know or chart that kind of development, you'd have to have a rubric and that rubric would be based on a cultural imagination. And that's what I critique this. The, the value lists they had were very, very much, not, not just European, Northern European. Mm -hmm. And wonderful, there's no nothing wrong with compassion, <laughs> complexity, and all of that. But it's not taking into account other cultures' views of what's important, what matters. Or what compassion is. I mean, compassion can look a lot of different ways. It can. You know, trust can look like a lot of very, things. Very, very, yes. So um, each of these concepts, that's part of what you can also do thinking developmentally is to actually see what would they look like from this perspective, from this perspective, from this culture. And that is fascinating mm -hmm. to see the differences. But I think it's also fascinating to see um, what an appetite there is by the big universities and the big funding organizations. And, you know, that project has a lot of traction. Oh, it does. And for me, that alone is a red flag because that is showing me that it is not disorienting. Because you can join it. You can join it and you can feel at home in thinking, you know, that compassion is a good thing and you know what compassion is. And I would say, I don't know either of those things. I think it, it looks, 
<laughs> I know what I call masculine compassion, which is being able to be decisive and put boundaries. Mm. Feminine compassion, which is embrace. And then there is a lot of, lot of idiot compassion. Ill-placed. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I, I have been in a lot of different cultural situations where people had compassion for me not understanding their culture. And so they behaved mm -hmm. in ways that I didn't even understand that they were actually giving me grace, right? Because I didn't have any language or receipt recepting yes. for that. And, and also I've found myself in situations where I had to be compassionate in a way that didn't look like, um, it doesn't look like, you know, tough love and it doesn't look like love, love. It looks like, it just looks like I have to get up in the morning and I have to make breakfast, even though I don't want to. And, you know, I have to, and part of that is, is just how you live. And so that, so for me, I just really felt like this, you know, you were saying that there were things that were coming from early uh, Christian mythologies. And and I, I have to say that I, I feel like those words are baked in all kinds of epistemological ghostings. And I, I'm just really leery of the idea that we can hold up a rubric. So not to go on about it, but I, I think what's interesting is that they are attractors. And in in the in the interest of change, there is still the habit to fly like moths to the flame towards something that is familiar. Yes, we said that. That's where we go when we're uncertain. Most people, anyway, do not have the wherewithal or the courage. I don't know what it even would be, or the compassion for the world. To, to face the, the uncertain and just say, okay, uh, I'm not going to shrink. I'm not going to go with the next fad. I'm not going to do whatever that is. That takes a lot of inner strength and courage. And so courage to me is a, a, a props, one of the universal uh, values, I suppose, that I would feel I can subscribe to. I don't think there's a culture. I don't know. Maybe you know, but the, I don't think there's a culture where that is not valued, for instance. Courage. And even thinking of the French root of it that has to do with heart. Yeah. And I think for me that in moments when I have had the most courage, what did I have? And what I had was actually heart. And yeah. what was pulling me was passion mm -hmm. um, and conviction and something that had to do with not being brave. I didn't have to muster up some sort of bravery. And what I did do was follow my, follow what was calling me, what was coming through me. And, and sometimes uh, on the contrary, I've had moments of thinking, oh, I'm really afraid of this. I need courage. And then I feel I'm grappling for some other thing 
Mm-hmm. It is not the same thing at all. And and it's not courage I'm looking for. I'm looking for mm-hmm. bravery. And and but in moments when I have really been truly courageous, there was nothing gonna stop me. Mm-hmm. I was gonna be in that place because my whole heart and soul and spirit and being were there. And and yes, I'm even I- to the point of maybe regretting it later. <laughs> but 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 when i didn't have courage it's like trust you know you walk across the room and you trust your feet sprain your ankle and then you realize that that you need to think about trust it's sometimes we have these things we don't notice till they're not there true the the automatic well getting older you will discover that too and perhaps you know it with your parents and those you love there's more and more things that you can't trust in that automatic way anymore. Mm. Suddenly they don't work. Mm-hmm. And then you become very conscious of just how, again, but then gratitude would be another one, just how grateful one has to be to, to wake up in the morning and have a body that still functions, can talk and make breakfast and play and draw and write and do all of those things. That it would be another one of those values that I think uh, that at least to me they matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gratitude for for having a life to be here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know much of a purpose. I've never had. I'd always laughed at that idea. And of when people say you have to find your purpose, well, yes, to some degree, it's good to have something to engaging to be passionate about but in the end i actually don't know what my purpose is i'm just here and and the best is what i have yeah i i have to say there's few things in this world that i'm what you might call superstitious about Mm -hmm. But, but gratitude is one of them and I, I think somewhere deep inside, there's a, 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 a part of me that feels like when you fall out of gratitude, you step in the way of big trouble. And I don't know, you know, sort of where that grew from, because I'm not somebody who harbors, um, you know, very much dogma in that way. Um, but I, I do feel that to live in gratitude for life um, is a form of health. And, it's a form and of what I didn't is, quite is, is a, a form, form of, of health is health is health, and and part of that has to do, I think, with what we were talking about before of of even learning. So one of the things that I have really been learning lately is being grateful for those people who have shown me how I don't want to live, right? And that, that you know, you talk about purpose, but there's some kind of direction that comes from perceiving what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And and that informs so much of what we do want to do. So, you know, we're quick to be grateful for those who are inspirational. But there's those who are frustrating and, 
and irritating and infuriating and all that we learn from that. And, and I think there's been, um, there's been for me a big shift around recognizing the gratitude that I feel for the learnings that I have been able to articulate and express and find the edges of only because people have shown me. For me, it's also exactly those people that I have the most trouble understanding. In politics, we have plenty of them. I just say, oh my, how, how can they? How can they? Then that to me is part of that gratitude because I, I learn and I hope I can develop some compassion for the way I, I then I do the, the, the old, you know, sort of coaching thing. I wonder what is it like to be them? What is it? Who are they? And then I feel uh, more able to tolerate whatever they're spewing out uh, that I really find totally objectionable. But then I think they're in life, they're suffering, they're whatever. I, how did they get to where they're now? And and that, that makes me feel, I don't know, that I still see some dignity in just being alive, I guess. <laughs> I think I, I phrase that same question only slightly differently of just how are they learning to be in their world? The learning is part of it, yes. And all the influences that that put them together the, to who they be, have become and who they are now and are they going to change? Probably not. Most people don't seem to be quite ready to change and grow. Mm-hmm. They don't. Or if they are, they're changing in ways that are imperceptible at the to moment. Us. Yeah. Yes. So that makes me wonder, what am I looking for? And I think that's been something that also, uh, you know, I becomes more and more clear is that if, if you aren't careful, you won't notice that you find what you're looking for. And this is another one of those sort of tricks of perception like the you know the the trick of the basketball game with the gorilla that walks through it and and you don't see it because you're not looking for it and you know when you ask uh, about the future I think I don't really want to say I see this or I see that because I don't want to look for that I want to be able to right. perceive those unexpected things that are coming along because actually that's where I hold hope is in the unexpected combinings and the unexpected things that are bubbling up. And it, it, because the familiar is going to be already metabolized in various familiar patternings and languagings and, and it's too easy to keep seeing what we have been seeing. How do we actually perceive all the possibilities that have always been there and continue to be there, but were never noticed. It's a very good question. It, it's, it's, it's hard to be so continuously alert and open to what comes to comes in, not what we are putting out, but what might come in, even surprises, even real 
total unexpected things. That is not easy for human beings. Now you have specialized in that. Yeah. In, in, in a, in, and that that's one part of what I call modeling yourself to the world. So they have an example of that. I think I'm less... No, actually, I, I feel the same way. I, I still hope that something will come along, particularly for the younger people, that I can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. But there is hope in that. But there's also no, absolutely no certainty. We can't totally, I can't totally trust that that will be the case. I hope that I, I you know, we will see. Yeah, we will see. Yeah. And being alert is a good thing. I agree with you there. Yeah. To actually look how our perceptions all the time tend to warp what's actually out there. Because we already have these filters. We already have these maps of how it ought to be or how it is. And that prevents us from actually seeing the cracks and seeing the, the, the possibilities that are potentials that are there behind it. Mm -hmm. I think in that thing, I think we agree in some ways. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, it, it, you know, it's, again, coming back to the disorientation and that for me, bringing the gratitude back in, there's something about having a, a, a state of just humility of I don't know what this day yes. is. I don't know what to do about how to hold my children in this time. But I'm I do know that when I sit with that not knowing and I feel the sadness that I could feel there, mm -hmm. um, there's also something moving, something opening. That despair is not a despair of paralysis. It's not a despair of a lack of morale or action. It's a it's a place where by saying, I don't know, I I am open mm -hmm. to, like you were saying, there's an opening to something that can come in that I might be able to perceive that I wasn't going to perceive if I was just looking for the linear path that we've been on. So... I feel that need for a multitude of experiences and emotions from rage to despair, to fear, to love, to confusion, to joy, to humor, to, and I don't want to lock any of them out because and we need them all. We need them all. They're all information. And they're all reflections of each other. You can't be afraid unless you love and you hope. And you can't have hope without fear and anger and confusion. And they're, they're, they're inside each other. And you can't have life without being aware of this mm -hmm. as well. I mean, the more you're familiar with the familiarize yourself with the notion of death, and endings in some ways the more you can be fully alive if you so much of the culture our culture here fends against any notion of mortality that that 
that's another brainwashing that I found very difficult to adjust to when I came here. I came from a culture where that was not the case. Mm-hmm. I saw people die when I was a child. I was there in their death struggle. Here that you would be completely uh, prevented from from experience that. That was hard to to acknowledge just how much the pressure is against even talking about it. I've got some teenagers and um, my 94, nearly 95 year old mother is living in our house. And she really doesn't like when strangers come. They really scare her and confuse her. And she doesn't, Mm. you know, so, so, Mm -hmm. so, but I had to, I'm, you know, I just published a book. I'm, I'm working, I'm in the prime of my work right now. And I have to go out in the world. So I, I actually hired my teenagers to watch out for her while I was gone. Paid them pretty good money. And it was interesting because this gave so much to the family. So first of all, of course, the kids got some pocket change. All right, that's great. A little more than pocket change, to be honest. But secondly, they got to actually take care of somebody else. To have to look and anticipate what does this person need. And that's really an important way of perceiving the anticipation of somebody else's needs. Um, and then also they were they they got to be with death. And I cannot tell you how quickly there was a change in them. In mm. them and in the whole house, because yeah, the, the commune, yeah. When you perceive death you perceive life really differently. That's, yes. Yeah, and it was, you know, that fast. I I would recommend it to (laughs) a lot of people that that having your teenagers take care of the the elderly is a a beautiful, beautiful learning for everybody. And yet they so tend to congregate with their peers. Uh, even my my grown up children, you know, I I've, I I grew up in a very cross generational, big huge Italian family. So the, the older people and sick people and dying people and birth. My mother was a midwife. All of that influenced who I am, and compassion, I suppose, and caring for others. I learned with my older mentally retarded sister she was the center of my family and everything had to do with how can you make her uh, uh, life easier and better and more comfortable and more secure and because i was smart enough and gifted enough that everybody thought she can fend for yourself and i think that has influenced who i have become and how I care about all people, not just those who are smart and able to converse with me at, you know, sort of an intellectual level. I really do care. Mm-hmm. And again, the old question, what is it? what was it like to be her? And how can you support somebody who's really old and starting to get confused? Perhaps that, that to me seems more 
meaningful at this stage of my life than theory and defending theory and well, <laughs> making I mean, no theory. Yeah. <laughs> Just I mean, doesn't I'm, doesn't matter anymore. I think it hopefully the theory is there too. It's just so there that it isn't there. <laughs> and so, yes, and sometimes it doesn't. Whatever theory, your theory or ego development theory, there are situations where it does support somebody, where they say, ah, now I get it why I behave this way or why this threatens me or why I have trouble with this boss they're useful they're just not the end all of or they're not explaining humanity or human beings in any rich enough way they don't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean at this point i'm much more interested in just how we learn together how we approach a conversation together how we reveal ourselves to each other who can i be when i'm with you is really yes. different than who i am with somebody else so you know i've especially after growing up around the esalen world and all of the self-help and every kind of know your what color <laughs> is your parachute crap i mean i've seen it all so i i i am much more interested in what we could be and it's funny because usually when i do um warm data work in the beginning of our trainings i never ever ever do the thing where everybody goes around and introduces themselves i don't do that thing and maybe at the end of the course we'll do that thing mm -hmm. but the the thing is that i don't know yet who i am when I'm with you and I don't really want to put a name or a title or any kind of a reductionist description on it right now because I really want that to be open I want you to wonder who is she and I want to wonder who are you and I want to wonder who who can I be when I'm with you and find that out instead of saying, hi, my name's Nora. I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> and then it's gone. Boom, gone. I've just like flattened the possibility. And then you, the first thing you say to me, maybe, well, oh, so, so you're, you're, you're a teacher and you're a filmmaker. What's that like? And then like, that's not interesting. <laughs> In our trainings, we always start with storytelling. Tell me a moment where something happened. It can be sad, joyful at, and in childhood. Something when you discovered that the world is not the way you expected it to be. And yeah. I, I swear in almost any training I've ever been with that, starting with that, two-minute stories, um, and then a round of how people react to what they've heard, how it touches them, brings the whole group into a completely different frame frame of mind yeah. and heart. So, yes, I again, I would agree. And good teaching to me would mean, can we be in relationship to those we facilitate that enables that? Yeah. The deeper understanding that not just being on the surface structure of, who you know, I'm doing this and I'm those kinds of things are not actually 
helping people find themselves even more deeply than they did before they engaged in any kind of conversation. So the question is, how did we do on this with each other? <laughs> and you started off asking about futures. And I think one of the, the most important thing about futures is how are how are we able to change? How are we able to learn and be different? And um, so because there is a there's some famous sci-fi writer who said the future's not what it used to be. And, you know, that change changes change. So right. as right, as change changes, change changes. And so so of course we're changing. And as we're changing, all the pathways are changing and who we can be changes. And so how in the world would we know? <laughs> we don't. That's the thing. Future would hold. So it's so much more fun to leave it open, but also it's much more than just fun. It's actually also not strangling out the possibility that could be there. It's an art of living, basically. Mm. In some ways, yes. And and again, I would say it's the not everybody I know and <laughs> is yet capable of that kind of openness, has the freedom, the privilege that we have. You and I, and perhaps you too, Tom, have to play in these arenas, to actually be open, to to experiment with it. That to me is part of, that makes me concerned a bit. What about all those we leave behind because they cannot yet do that? Maybe never will that always are in sort of, in a simpler way, defensive about what they know and protect it and keep it in place, that that is a worry for me. And how do we then, again, separate, instead of joining, separate different uh, levels of understanding, different perspectives, into those that can, what we can probably do, all three of us, and those who can't yet do that, who don't have that openness, that capacity to play with ideas, that capacity to see the cracks in whatever they're looking at. That is part of that happenstance of birth, I guess, where some of us get that and have the education and the backgrounds and the, the luck, the sheer luck that things come to this point where we can do this. It's interesting because well, yes. I find the, the folks that have the least amount of ability to go into this kind of openness are people who are successful in the existing system and comfortable. Well, they're certainly part of it. Yes. Why change? What everything is donkey dory. Well, it's just a lot easier to perceive that your success was produced by a linear strategy. And where when I work with people who are in really dire straits and very traumatized, and I, you know, I you might think when people are in a lot of trauma that they would be less able to explore in this way. But that's been the opposite of my experience. What I have found is that that lots of groups of people that I'm working with that are in really 
big trouble, in a lot of pain, have been totally betrayed, they know that their struggles are coming from multiple directions. So they are able to perceive the multiplicity of, of what's happening, not as some theoretical whatchamajigit. It's actually just Lived how it experience. is. Yes. Yeah. And so it's a completely embodied knowing of this thing we call complexity. And then when we start to work together, that feeling of, okay, well, where is this trauma residing? Is it in me? Is it in you? Or is it actually yes. in this thing that we're in? And that movement from, from being the thing that happened to me to being something that is an expression of these systems that we're in is an incredibly healing movement. I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. To see the, that we're not, again, that's so cultural and so particularly American, the self-made person. <laughs> right. You know, the whole idea that, that of course you're embedded in so many multiple systems from the get-go, from the day you're born, where you're born, what language you're in, what what historical period. It all makes a difference. So that's yeah. That is one of the things that is very strong here, perhaps more so than in Europe. That sense of success, that kind of success. And not recognizing just how little in some ways we actually do have power and influence and how much we are influenced by multitudes of other effects that all play together. Okay. Yes. And yet still that here I am in my life, I'm I'm feeling, I'm thinking, I'm loving. I don't do much hating, but I have had rage. Yeah. A two-year-old who doesn't want to leave you alone when you're in the bathroom, that creates genuine, <laughs> total rage against the incapacity to communicate that you need two minutes alone. All of that is part of being alive and sharing also the sorrow, and sharing the joy. In German, we say half, half joy Half I can translate it. Half joy is is double joy, and half sorrow is less sorrow. That doesn't work in English. But anyway, how Freud, you know it. Well, I I think something like uh, uh, shared sorrow is half the sorrow, half and sorrow. shared the joy is double the joy. Something like yes, that. yes. I mean, the conversation is so interesting to me because I had like all all the things laid out in my papers and through an invisible hand, you talked about all of this, you know, so I wanted to talk about your wonderful book and, you know, combining which is out now and I wanted to talk about Kozipski and zombie ideas and and how how you know our framing of the meaning crisis and the meta crisis is like an old thing you know like a puritan protestant framing that disconnects us from from the present all of these things and again through invisible hand you you answered all of this and without even asking so that uh, that is fantastic to me um so 
in in this kind of spirit do you do do you want to add something to to this to this beautiful conversation to close it out or or <clears throat> is there something that is on your mind that you feel like is you know bringing this all beautifully together For me, there is a lot of precious value in having conversations uh, in this way with, with others who, who are equally interesting and different, but there are also synergies in terms of what we reflect on and deal with. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I wished I would be like to be in the same body space I want to smell the other person. I want to see them move. I want to want to get that additional sense, the filter of these wonderful uh, machines that bring us together are also a separator. And in the end, being with others in real space is even more beautiful. I've been thinking a lot about our creature that that you know Suzanne you have your way of being in the world and your you know presence and all of that and somewhere in there there is this creature and I have my creature and that as we go into this time of more and more technology um, you might have experienced once or twice the creature in you getting gnarly Ash. like i i you offer me you know push one for this and two for that and three for this and four and my creature's like but no um and i i i'm with you i want to lean into that don't forget to listen to the small sounds that your partner makes when they sleep and let the little tiny hairs on your arm tell you when someone's lying and remember your creature tend to your creature because more and more i think we have the 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 loss of of perception the loss of sensitivity you you go into a new city now and you don't learn your way around you just use the technology yes and and as we are doing this we're losing sensitivities and our creature knows how to find water our creature knows where the sun is moving our creature knows to find shelter there are things that we know my creature knows when you're angry far before you tell me mm -hmm. and so I, I think that's something I would like to leave with is this this remembering of our inner um, you know the creatureliness. It's a creatureliness. It's a, it's a something <laughs> that wants to snuggle with with where it's safe and a thing that wants to you know screech when it's not safe. And that's that's important to remember now, I think. Mm -hmm. and to acknowledge the shrieking in others mm. thank you so much really that was so lovely that you both joined here to this to this conversation and 
yeah, um, I don't know what to say. It was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us together. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>